This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is preaching from the book of 1 Peter, and today we're in chapter 2. I think most Christians would agree things changed when we accepted Christ as our Savior. However, asked to give details about that change, and some believers might be hard-pressed to come up with an answer. Peter has an answer for us in his letter to the early church. Among other things, we gained a new identity when we were saved. And that identity is entirely grounded in our Savior. So, we need to know Him, and we need to know more about our own new nature that we've inherited at our new birth. As we'll discover in the first part of today's message from Pastor Pierre. We have a lot of ground to cover in First Peter. So find your places in the second chapter. We're going to read verses 4 through 5. Now, so far in our study of First Peter, the believer's regeneration showed up as a common theme. In chapter 1, the regeneration, the fact that we are born again, to be generated again. Now, the apostle now kicks off this second portion of this epistle with the logical step after the new birth, namely growth. And he hinted at that in the beginning of chapter 2 when he says, Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. It's a logical step from birth that someone would grow. But now he switches metaphors and offers the picture of a building being constructed. And because his emphasis is on the foundation of that project, I titled this portion of Peter's first letter, Growth Grounded in God. Now, the maturing process in the life of the reborn represents God's project and His promises. So keep those two concepts in mind as we finish chapter 2. We're not going to do that today, obviously, but for the next few weeks when we cover the remainder of the chapter here, God's project and God's promises to you. We will cover the project today and promises next week. First Peter 2, verses 4 through 5. And coming to Him, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So church, my goal this morning mirrors Peter's objective for his original readers, namely to get you to rejoice at your place in God's project. Remember, there is a project that God has started particularly in your life collectively. That project is called His Church. And you have a specific place in that project. And the purpose of today's passage here, and obviously we're going to mirror that uh, purpose, is to get you to rejoice in that place. Because from time to time, we are tempted to complain to God about the place where He chose to place us temporarily or, or maybe for a long time in His sovereign plan and his sovereign project. So let's talk about this project for a moment. Peter clarifies that believers have come to Jesus. That's how he kicks off this next paragraph here, coming to him. 
And we know that the him is referring to Jesus because of the way he finished the previous paragraph by speaking of the kindness of the Lord. Believers are people who have tasted the kindness of the Lord. That, that is a feature of your life and my life. There are no Christians who have not tasted the kindness of the Lord. Otherwise, they are not reborn people. So one of the features of our life is that we have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And now the antecedent of that pronoun, him, is the Lord. So we note he's talking about Jesus. And he clarifies that believers are people who have come to Jesus. And the verb form that Peter used here implies a continual coming to him. In other words, we are people who have come to Christ one time for our salvation, but we continually come to Him not because we are unsure of our salvation. We want to make sure that we keep coming to Christ. Or like some people I know, maybe you, you did this growing up too. There was a particular lady in mind that I have grown up in the church where I became a believer who kept accepting Christ every Sunday. Well, that's not the point. You keep coming to Jesus because Scripture instructs us to do that. And because it's the desire of our heart, so we shouldn't fear losing our salvation. But coming to Christ, as in drawing near to Him, shows maturity, specifically in times of hostility, which was the case here of the original readers of Peter here. Who else would they turn to other than Jesus Christ? So doing that continually shows evidence of spiritual growth, much like a toddler keeps crawling to her father's feet for assurance and comfort. Therefore, maturing believers, well-nourished in the pure milk of God's Word, learn the art of coming to Him as in drawing near in repentance for post-conversion sins and for wisdom, for example, and for strength and renewal, etc. But Peter establishes here that spiritual growth involves not just coming to Jesus, but staying close to Him. In other words, you have come to Christ in coming to Him, you stay close. You don't just come to Him as you go to the ATM. You come to Jesus Christ. And the former fisherman repeated the same concept that he heard from Christ Himself. Only Jesus used a different metaphor when He said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. John 15, verse 5. So that's the same concept, only expressed in different metaphors, originally from Christ himself and now uh, from Peter. He was within earshot when Jesus spoke those words concerning the vine. But again, Peter is using a different metaphor here. But so far what we understand, therefore, from that one first sentence, from the beginning of the paragraph, coming to him, that's all we've covered so far. And what we learn is that Scripture reminds you and me how Christ saved us in the past, and now He sustains us in the present. Okay? So coming to Christ, drawing near to Him, is a discipline that reborn people are encouraged to do, and it shows evidence when you go to Jesus Christ instead of going to the bottle or going to other sources of, quote-unquote, joy. These are fake joy. We learn in first, the first chapter here that we have already joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's not something we will attain. It's something that is available to us now. Joy inexpressible and full of glory because of the fact that we have been reborn. So Peter also reminds his readers in talking to them about God's project. He reminds them of two factors of their spiritual growth. Okay, And we're going to spend the remainder of our time talking about those two factors 
of our spiritual growth, and we will do well to understand them when they were first directed at the believers in Asia Minor here. The first one I want you to understand is the nature of Christ, verse 4, the nature of Christ. Now, remember the life of Peter with the sweet words of his Savior in his, in his mind promising, upon this rock I will build my church. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Peter now directs his reader's attention to the very foundation of the Christian faith. Remember, Jesus nicknamed him the rock, not the big rock, not the foundation of the church, but a little pebble. Okay, that's what his name means, Kepha or Cephas. And Jesus said that to him because Peter himself articulated the common confession of the church, the truth on which the church is founded. And that truth is that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in response to that, Jesus said to him, you will remember this from our study of Matthew. Jesus said, upon this rock, this affirmation, I will build my church, not in the person of Peter. So there's no such thing as Peter being the first pope. Okay, Peter is the one who articulated the foundation of the church, and Jesus affirmed that. And we refer to this confession and this affirmation as the confession of the church. And that confession, which we all affirm, refers to a him, not an it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Therefore, Christians can always crawl to the feet of Jesus because the Son of the living God has conquered death, affirmed Cephas, named the little pebble. So Jesus, the cornerstone, which we will get to in a couple of weeks here, it's another metaphor that Peter uses here, is that very rock upon which he himself will build his church. A church is founded upon or built upon the person of Jesus Christ, not on the personality of the leaders, not on a theory, not on a hypothesis, not on a philosophy of ministry, but on the person of Jesus Christ. And Peter's affirming this because they needed to understand, the original readers needed to understand, listen, your faith is based upon the person of Jesus Christ, the one who is the living stone. Now, don't be confused by the oxymoron here. This is a paradox, a living stone. Stones don't live. There's no life in them. Nothing that even suggests life in stones, much less consciousness. There are plenty of expressions that we use sarcastically to refer to rocks. You know, nothing is what rocks dream about. I've heard this, but English is such a weird language. You need to know this. But rocks have no life. They have no consciousness. But, listen to this, they can be chiseled and carved into beautiful art that gives the beholder the appearance of life. For example, a human face or a human figure. And if you are a lover of art like I am, you will admire rocks being chiseled and carved into images, for example. Not for worship, of course, but as an admiring art. Statues, for example. But listen, however lifelike these sculptures may turn out, the fact remains that these are rocks that are lifeless. They may look like they have life in them, but they are pieces of stone. They are rocks. Now, Christ, on the other hand, is the opposite. He grants life to the believer through the new birth. We've already determined that from chapter 1. And without the assistance of human hands, and apart from Him, life cannot exist. We've already determined that also when we went over chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Genesis. And Colossians 1.16 affirms the same thing, that everything is created for Him, by Him, and through Him, Jesus Christ. 
And he himself affirms in John 14, verse 5, I am, the verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this is what uh, Peter uh, means when he says Jesus is the living rock, the living stone. He is the foundation of the church. He is the very cornerstone of our faith. And you come to him, believers, because that is something that he has granted for you to do. You have been reborn, born again, and you long, it's a command that he says, long for the pure milk of God's word so that you can grow by God's word. And now in the process of growth, you continually come to him because he is the living stone. Therefore, because he is the living stone, and Peter says here, he is the living stone that has been rejected by men. That's the next part of the sentence here. When people reject the offer of salvation, they are walking away from the only source of life. And tragically, they choose spiritual death. See, when people reject the offer of the gospel church, they're not saying no thank you to attending your church. They are declining the very offer of life and therefore signing their death sentence, spiritually speaking, eternal death. That is why when someone rejects the gospel, it's the mother of all tragedies. It's compassionate for us to say, listen, let me urge you to reconsider. I am not asking you to join my group. I'm not asking you to join my church. I'm not asking you to embrace a philosophy. I'm asking you to live. I'm inviting you to receive life rather than death. Unbelievers, for that reason, appraise Jesus not as a solid rock. Peter says here, this, he is the living stone which has been rejected by men. He is referring to the appraisal of people who are unbelievers. They value Jesus not as a solid rock, but as a stone of inconvenience. Someone who will tell me how not to live. Someone who will tell me what I can't do. Something that needs to be removed from our society. The Father, however, assigns priceless value to this stone. Because Peter says, even though he was rejected by men, in the sight of God, he is choice and precious. God's appraisal is really what matters. See, it doesn't really matter how much value people assigned to Jesus Christ if the Father has already determined, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He articulated that to Him. And therefore, the value that the Father assigns to Jesus is a, the value of a highly esteemed gem, a priceless jewel, chosen and precious, without whom no one would know God. In fact, no one would have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Remember that expression in chapter 1? When Peter introduces the epistle, he says, I'm writing to you who are chosen by the foreknowledge of God. The only reason people are chosen is because Jesus was first chosen by the Father. Not as in there are many options to choose from, mini, 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 mo, I'm going to choose Jesus. That is not what Peter says when he refers to Jesus as the living stone, the choice of the Father. He's referring to the fact that Jesus is God's beloved Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the one who says, I will go and redeemed sinful humanity. A decision that was made prior to even the foundation of the world. So that's the first fact of your spiritual growth. You need to understand, all of us need to understand the nature of Christ. Christ is not just one option among many. He is not one religious leader with whom I identify more than with Buddha, for example. No, he is the living stone because he is alive. Everyone else is in their grave. The nature of Christ. Now, 
The other fact of the believer's maturing life that we will do well to understand is the nature of Christians. See, once we understand the nature of Christ, who He is and who He is not, of course, then we need to understand who we are. Because if there is ever a time of confusion in our world, it is now. People are confused about who they are. The Bible is not confused about who we are. The Bible says it very clearly. This is Jesus Christ, the living stone, and this is who you are in Him. Verse 5, using the same image of a living stone to describe his readers. Peter wants them to understand and assimilate this important truth. Namely, church, that believers, you and I, because we have been reborn, we share the divine nature of Christ. Is that clear? Peter says in 2 Peter 1 verse 4 there, we are partakers of the divine nature. Okay, Obviously, that sharing of the divine nature is limited because we are not eternal in the same sense that Jesus is eternal. Obviously, this doesn't mean that we can evolve into Godhood. That is a heresy that some quote-unquote Christian cults like to promote. None of us can ever evolve into anything. If anything, left alone, we will devolve into degeneracy. But the point is, some divine attributes, such as, for example, omnipotence, being all-powerful, or omniscience, knowing all things, and omnipresence, being able to be present at all times, at the same time, with the entirety of your being, everywhere at the same time, those attributes belong to God alone. We do not share in that divine nature. I hope that's clear to you. But we do share the divine nature. We are partakers of that nature. Peter says elsewhere, and he gives us a hint that he has given us that concept by using the same designation. When he says, you too as living stones. Christ is the living stone, but you also are living stones. The very next verse. Our new nature, therefore, granted to us at the new birth, guarantees to us eternal life. And that is the aspect of the divine nature that we share with Christ. Just like he rose from the grave, we too will rise from the grave one day because we have been reborn. And that's true of anyone who comes to faith in Christ. They will also vacate their graves one day because as he lives, we live. Now, this is another reason, church, why you can rest assured that you can never forfeit your salvation. Is that understood? You can never sin your way out of the grace of God. You can sin your way out of existence here. God may say, let me take you home. But you can never forfeit or lose your salvation or ever be separated from his love because of this very fact. You share in the divine nature. Your union with Christ is so cemented because of what he has done, of course, that you now have his nature. You are in Jesus, and He is in you, in an unbreakable bond. Now, our society even ascribes Christness to you and to me. When they call us by our title, we are Christians, because we share in the divine nature. Now, do you see why, church, failing to display Christ's likeness is so problematic to us? When you act like your old self rather than your new self, what you're telling the world is, my old nature is acting up now, rather than my new nature. You see, because we are like Christ, in a sense, in a very limited sense, we are living stones, small s stones, small pieces of that construction project. When Jesus is the cornerstone, which we learn here in the following paragraph, or in the same paragraph, but we'll cover it next week. So anytime we don't act like our Savior, we display our old nature. 
Because you are partakers of the divine nature, we share in the nature of Christ, we are fully capable, church, of overcoming sin. You are fully capable, my dear brother, of overcoming pornography. You are fully capable of overcoming a drinking problem or a bitterness or a joyless life because you have the divine nature. You have the ability to greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory because that is part of the nature of Christ to have overflowing joy that you can't even explain. And you have a part of that nature. It belongs exclusively to those who share in the nature of the living stone rejected by man but precious in the sight of God. No other belief system can claim such a union between founder and followers. No belief system can do that credibly anyway, can claim such a union between founder and followers. For example, people can claim that the religious teachings of their gurus are in them, but they can't say, the leader lives in me, because their leader is dead. The leader can't unite with them forever through the new birth, because every religious figure is still in their graves. In other words, they are dead stones. Only Jesus Christ is the living stone. Followers of other faiths can exist separately from their religious founder. They can be enlightened. That's the most that can happen to them. They can be enlightened. They can be educated. Or supposedly they can achieve another level of spiritual awareness, whatever that means. But they cannot be born again unless they place their faith in Christ and then forsake their system and come to Jesus Christ. Now, this is true of you, my fellow believer. According to Paul, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Colossians 3 verse 3. And more specifically, you have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. And it is no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. Galatians 2 verse 20. You see how solidified your union with Christ is? You shared in his death. You have been crucified with Christ. And it is not you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And for that reason, according to Paul in Romans 6.13, we are dead to sin, but alive in Christ. See, we are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. For this reason, my brothers and sisters, God says this of you. You are a small living stone because I gave you the nature of my son, the choice and precious living stone, the cornerstone. So that's your new nature. That's the nature of Christ and the nature of the Christian. Now we're going to spend the remainder of our time itemizing features of this new nature. First of all, please understand your distinction. We're, all, we're in verse 5. Your distinction in the beginning of the verse. You too as living stones. Are you also as living stones? Now, Peter explains the reason why he uses the metaphor living stones. It's because... God employs believers as building blocks. He says this, you also as living stones are being built up. Okay, so first of all, your distinction is you're not just living stones by title. There is a function behind that metaphor of your life. You are being built up, the Bible says, as building blocks. And this is the divine project called church. You are part of the universal church, whether you are a member of this local church or a local church across town, you are a part of the universal church, and therefore you are a building block in this project called church. The Christians of Asia Minor, the original readers here, could have concluded, mistakenly of course, that their lives had no eternal importance. If they believed the lies of their persecutors, you understand that? The Romans would have considered them a cancer to be removed from society. Non-essential, if you will. 
But the author doesn't want them to be surprised. He says, listen, if you share in the nature of Christ and Christ has, Christ has been rejected by men, guess what's going to happen to you? Do not expect to be a popular Christian. That is a contradiction of terms. Because if the, they persecuted the living stone, if they have rejected Christ, they will reject you. So do not be surprised, although obviously heartbroken, if your family rejects you. But don't be surprised. A society that rejects Christ also rejects his followers. However, God has a completely different, I would say the opposite perspective, which again is the only one that counts. If God sees the living stone Jesus Christ as choice and precious, guess how he sees you, my friend? Choice and precious. We've already seen that he has chosen you before the foundation of the world. You are precious to him. That is your distinction. Even though the world hates you, you are precious to God because God wants to use you for a specific purpose, a specific plan, just like he did with these first century believers. Even though that plan involves, for sure, occasional adversity, occasional hostility, and sometimes fatal adversity, God has not made a mistake. I hope you understand that. God has not made a mistake by placing you where you are right now. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.